I'm going to read from Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 16. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He has made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and to gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says, in the time of my favor, I will answer you. In the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. To say to the captives, come out. And to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and will find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. This is the word of the Lord. Man, thank you, Kenny. Happy Mother's Day, everybody. Not everybody? Well, I think everybody has a reason to celebrate. How many of you here were born by a mother? Let's all give our moms a hand clap. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's a day for all of us. It's good to have you guys here. Today is a um, celebration of moms. Mothers have a unique, irreplaceable place in the family. They are the glue 
that hold many of our worlds together, and we are so thankful for the unique gifts of our mothers here. So I hope you enjoy the little gift that we have for all our mothers. If you didn't get one, uh, see uh, Heidi or Romero after the service, and they will give you one of those. Also, after the service, we have some uh, photographers set to take uh, family portraits. Um, if you're interested in that, so... Um, yeah, that's there. And it's a unique, unique Sunday. We don't do this every Sunday. It's unique because moms are unique. And the love of a mother is unique. It's pretty special. And so we want to celebrate that today. And that's something we see in the text that God points out over 2,000 years ago through this prophecy of Isaiah. And that's the uniqueness of the love of a mother. And so I'm, I'm really excited that we're going to talk to talk about the love of a mother today, and I think the love of your mom points to an incredible, life-changing truth that if you'll let it sink into your soul today, it, uh, it'll, it'll transform you. So I'm, I'm excited about talking about this today, and in this prophecy of Isaiah we just read, we meet a mysterious figure shrouded in mystery called the servant, and this is one of uh, several Uh, servant psalms in Isaiah, Psalm 49. And the New Testament writers over and over make this point that these servant psalms are about Jesus Christ and that Jesus is going to come one day and bring salvation. And the salvation he's bringing, this text outlines it, and it's a sweeping, panoramic, expansive salvation that stretches from this moment in time that begins when Isaiah is talking, and it stretches to the end of time. It's this incredible sweeping salvation. And if you look carefully, you'll see there's a salvation soon, a salvation eventually, and a salvation ultimately. Because in verses five and eight, it says to the Jews, and you gotta understand, at this point in time, the Jews are not in Jerusalem, they're in exile in Babylon. And in verses five and eight, it says, one day soon, God is gonna bring you back And God is going to restore what was yours. But, he says, that's not the limit of God's salvation. You guys ever notice how easily it is for us to limit God's salvation to certain parts of our life? But God's salvation is a lot bigger than what we normally expect. And here's what he says. He goes on in verse 6, which is so exciting. And he says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back um, those of Israel I have kept. So that's too small. You're thinking too small. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So God says, I've got greater, more expansive ideas about salvation than maybe what you've been thinking about. I'm not just saving you. I'm going to do a work through you to save others. And then he goes on in, in verse 13 And he also says, I'm not just going to draw people out of every nation. You're going to be a light to the Gentiles, and people are going to come from the north, south, east, and west, and come to me, and I'm going to create this multi-ethnic, multinational people, right? But then he says, in verse 13, the mountains are actually rejoicing. And here we have this vision of the new heavens and the new earth, where there's no more sorrow, there's no more death. There's no more disease. There's no more destruction. It's, this is the day we're all longing for, right? Amen? Yeah. So there's this big sweeping salvation in verses 1 through 13. God says, I'm bringing my salvation. It's coming soon. 
later and ultimately. But today, I don't want to talk about verses 1 through 13. We have to have the context, right? God is sharing all these amazing promises of this coming day. But then, for the rest of the time, I just want to look at verses 14, 15, and 16, because there we find a a fascinating response from God's people. In the middle of all these promises, we see pure skepticism. Skepticism from God's people. It says, but Zion said. Now Zion is this little hill in Jerusalem where the temple had been built, which is by now the Babylonians have destroyed the temple. And so Zion has become this metaphor for all of Jerusalem, all of Israel, all of God's people. And it says, now Zion said, um, right, it says, I don't feel loved. Sure, there's all these promises of loving action one day, but right now, in the midst of being in exile, in the midst of all the suffering, in the midst of everything, the sirens going off in the distance, all the craziness, I'm not feeling very loved. I'm not feeling the love, God. All those promises of salvation one day, that's great, but right now, right here, I'm feeling pretty unloved by you. Can anybody ever relate to that in your life? Yeah. I think it's a typical condition we all find ourselves in at time. And so, Verse 14 is a painful question. Verse 15 is an answer to that question. And verse 16 is a cure for the pain. And that's what we're going to walk through today. So let's take a look first at this painful question. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Yeah, sure, salvation's coming one day. It's coming soon. It's coming eventually. It's going to be expansive. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, what about right now? Here I am sitting in my mess. I feel forsaken right now. I feel forgotten right now. I'm surrounded by needs now. I'm surrounded by tragedies now. Look at Zion. Zion's in ruins. The temple was this ongoing expression of your love and your presence with us, and it's destroyed. What's that say about us? What's that say about you and your love for us? Do you guys hear that pain? You recognize that that skepticism that begins to creep into our hearts? And this question represents a condition of the human heart we need to look at. And I, I want to I point it out because notice what they don't say. They don't say, hey, we don't believe these promises. They don't say, hey, we don't believe in God anymore. They do. I, I, think, I think it's pretty clear they believe the promises, but it's not affecting them. What they've heard about God is not affecting them anymore. The promises God's giving them is not affecting them in this moment. Why? Because it's possible for the human heart to live in the presence of truth. What they've heard about God, what they know to be true intellectually about God, and yet not have that truth affect them in the way in which we live or in the way in which we feel toward God. It's possible to say, and I see this all the time, oh, I believe in a God of love, but then it doesn't affect the way we live. Doesn't affect how we feel. Doesn't really shape us. There's a quote by Dr. Richard Lovelace in one of his books. He says this. It is an item of faith that we are children of God. There's plenty of experience in us against it. The faith that surmounts this experience and is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love instead of having to steal love and acceptance from other sources, is actually the root of holiness. So he says, 
Guys, it's an item of faith. You've got to trust and believe that you're children of God, but I know there's evidence against it, but the faith that can surmount that evidence and is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love instead of stealing love from other resources, that heart-level, gut-level faith, that's the root of holiness. What's he saying? He's talking about the same thing we see here in verse 14. See, we may say, oh, I believe I'm a child of God. Yeah, absolutely. I believe God loves me, but there's all kinds of evidence we experience against that. Right? There's evidence inside you that's against that. You say, I don't know how God would love me considering what I feel, considering what I know about myself, considering what I've done in my life. Or maybe there's a lot of evidence outside you, seeming unanswered prayers, difficulties, disappointments, moments where there are more questions than answers, moments where God even feels absent. And you say, yeah, we believe we're children of God. We may believe with our head. We may subscribe to this belief that God is a God of love. I believe in that, but I see all these unanswered prayers around me. I see all the feelings inside of me, so I don't feel his love very deeply. Not as deeply as I feel all this other stuff going on. God isn't much of a reality in my heart right now. It's not transforming my affections. See, what Dr. Richard Loveless is getting at is this. You can't just live with that. You can't just ignore it. You have to deal with that. You have to, because if you don't surmount the evidence, if you don't find a way to get over all the blinding evidence around you and move beyond that, uh, this, this mental subscription to truth that we have and somehow let it sink down deep into heart-affecting, life-changing transformation by that truth, then you're going to steal self-acceptance. You're going to steal love from other sources. And maybe you say, oh, man, I believe God loves me. But your heart doesn't believe that. And as a result, what do you mean by stealing? Uh, you're going to choose careers poorly. You're going to stay in relationships you shouldn't be in. You're going to overwork. You're going to do all kinds of stuff because at bottom, you really have to steal love. You have to steal a sense of acceptance from these other places because you're not getting anything from the thing you say you believe, and that is that God loves you. I believe God loves me. Why aren't you living like it? And that's why this has to be addressed. And of course, when things are going well, you know, our beliefs seem fine, everything's good and dandy, and you know, it doesn't really matter too much when life is peachy and, and smooth sailing, whether or not I'm really believing this stuff in my heart. Because it doesn't affect the way I live. Everything's fine. But the moment tragedy hits, the moment difficult circumstances hit, then suddenly this painful question, I feel forsaken, I feel forgotten. No matter what the Bible says, even though I actually kind of believe it, I don't sense God's love. So this is a painful question. Now how does God deal with it? It's point number two. How does God deal with this despondency, this sense of forsakenness and being forgotten? Well, there's two things that God does that we see in verse 15 and 16 that I love. He gives an answer to the question and he gives a cure for the pain. First of all, the answer to the question in verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? Can a nursing mother forget the baby who's sitting there nursing right then? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Is that a wonderful verse or what? 
I want to stand back for a minute before we actually dive into the verse itself. And I just want to talk about how God deals with despairing people, despondent people. Because first of all, I want you to see something God doesn't do. God doesn't just say, um, hey, we'll suck it up. Toughen up, man. I know you're despairing right now. You just need to man up a little bit. That's not what God does, right? In fact, in verse 15 and 16, it, it shows God pausing. God lets himself be interrupted. Do you see that? Like Isaiah is going and the, the prophet, he's going along and suddenly in comes verse 14 and Israel says, yeah, I don't believe that. Like right in the middle of his rant about salvation and it's going to be amazing. And yeah, I don't, I don't care, really. Have you ever interrupted God like that? Or maybe you hear a sermon that's all full of hope and promise and you're like checking out. It's like not interested. Hmm. It's, it's kind of like, can you imagine what a professor would do in a classroom if he's in the middle of teaching? Like, Brian, what would you do in the middle of teaching on math if a student just said, stood up and said, I don't agree? And you're like, it's math. Like, <laughs> what do you not agree with? What's the professor going to do? Is he going to ignore it? Is he going to, like, say, excuse me? You know? But God... Look at what God does. God pauses, and God takes this outburst seriously. He doesn't just say, suck it up. He lets himself be interrupted. He attends to the question. He deals with it. And another thing that God, God doesn't do that I want you to see is God doesn't just give emotional support and leave it there. He gives a very challenging kind of truth. He appeals to the mind. God asks a question. In the middle of that question is a metaphor, this beautiful picture, right? God compares himself to a nursing mother. How is the God of the universe like a nursing mother? And how is the God of the universe unlike a nursing mother? See, on one hand, to answer that question, it requires an enormous amount of thought, hard thinking. You guys ever take a literature class in school? When you talk about metaphors, you talk about similes, there's infinite connections. You can say this thing is like this, and you have to start thinking about all the ways they're like one another. How, in what ways is God like a nursing mother? So on one hand, God is saying, I want you to think. And, and on one hand, it's, it's theology, but it's not just theology. It's theology designed to get to your affections, designed to work down into your heart. In verse 15, God is saying, I want you to bring all these theological truths into the closest possible connection with the affections of your heart until it begins to change you from the inside. You see that? So that's what he's saying. I want you to think and ponder and meditate until you feel something. So let's look at this verse. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. If we're going to be helped by this, I want you to meditate on that. Think about that for a minute. What does that tell us about God? There's at least three things, I think, that this says about God's love for us that I want to point out today. Three reasons why a mother can't forget her infant and why the bond of nursing mother and infant is so strong. Maybe the strongest human bond of all. Um, and the first thing is a mother cannot physically forget her infant, right? Nursing moms, former nursing moms. You, can't, like, you don't have to set an alarm clock to know when to nurse your baby, right? Because... The, the, more, the more you nurse your baby, the more the milk comes in, right? It's called prolactins. Right? Are you impressed that I knew that? 
the more you nurse, the more you have to nurse. It's just a physical reality. You feel uncomfortable if you're not nursing the baby. In other words, a mother can't forget her baby physically, right? A mother's physical nature moves her toward the child. But it's, it's not just that. Uh, a, a mother can't forget it physically, but a mother can't emotionally forget the baby because nursing doesn't just release prolactins. Nursing releases oxytocins. You guys know about oxytocins? How do they make you feel? Very good. Make me feel good. Yeah. That's what they do. And, and, and the mother looks at the baby's face and she feels that rush of love and delight and contentment, especially as you see your child. Right? Now, not only can not a mother not forget the baby physically or emotionally, but there's these enormous forces, forces inside her that move her toward her baby. And as a result, a mother's love for the baby is not just physical and emotional, it's unconditional. Think about every other kind of relationship. Think about your friendships. Think about your romantic relationships. We like to think, hopefully, there's an amount of unconditionality in those. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. In marriage, you make vows, right? You stand before God and you say, till death do us part. And let's be real. Even in marriage, there's give and take, right? There's give and take. If there's not give and take, if it's not mutual, eventually things are going to wither up and die. There's got to be give and take. Look at the relationship between a mom and an infant. Is there give and take? Yeah, there's plenty. The infants all take. Yeah. <laughs> and the moms all give, right? Listen, mothers, let me ask you a question. Moms, what do you get from your infant? Nothing, right? They're not buying you a car or taking you to get your hair did, right? They... Your, your babies aren't giving you anything. They're just take, take, take. The infant does nothing to earn your love and affection. And yet, 24-7 nursing moms, you guys know this, your entire life revolves around your baby. You can't forget your baby. You can't be away from your baby. All the time, all the time, all the time. How physical, how emotional, how unconditional is a mother's love for her child? And that nurturing love grows as our kids grow, doesn't it? There's a, there's a certain kind of love moms give that we fathers, I think at times, stand in awe of. Um, the patience, there's a certain type of grace and patience that as dads, we don't always possess. And as husbands, sometimes we wish we got a taste of as well. <laughs> right? Like, how did he get away with that? And I didn't. He's five, you know. You're a grown man. <laughs> And God says, I want you to compare that to me. The physical, emotional, unconditional love of a mother. And here's the punchline. In fact, almost all modern translations say this verse this way. It says, though she may forget, I will not forget you. But that's not the way the Hebrew says it. The Hebrew says, though she will forget. She will forget. What's that mean? Say, a mother, a mother will forget? I heard, I heard talking. Yeah, two years old isn't far away. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, and, and what, what God is saying here is that God is both like and unlike a mother. There's ways in which God is, is in many ways like a mother, but here's how I'm unlike a mother. Human mothers forget, All right? In spite of the prolactin, in spite of the oxytocin, in spite of everything, some human mothers, some human mothers are just bad human mothers. Let's be honest. Some human mothers abandon their kids. 
But no human mom is perfect. None. And, and maybe you say, hey, except Lena. And maybe you say, hey, I had a good mom. She didn't abandon me. Yeah, but eventually, what if she keeps going? Even, even the best moms, even the best moms, we all live long enough, we all eventually begin to forget. We all eventually pass on from this life to eternity. Eventually, we all lose our mothers. I'm terrified of that day. Motherly love seems so unconditional and so indestructible, but it's not because human beings aren't indestructible. We're very destructible. But God says, my love for you is not destructible. My love for you is unconditional. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you or forget you. You see what God's saying here? He says, you see, mother love, it's, it's a signpost of my love for you, pointing toward how deeply and perfectly I love you. In fact, if you were to compare, it's nothing compared to my love for you. You see her physical love, right? Mom's physical love. You see how her very being moves towards you. You know everything about my glory, everything about my faithfulness, everything about my very nature drives me powerfully toward you. I'm a God of love. I'm a God of faithfulness. I love you. And beyond that, his love is emotional. Think about that. For God to say, I'm infinitely greater than a nursing mother like when you know a nursing mother, you, you see how they just dote on their kids, right? You ever see a mother nursing and just like, I remember Nancy when she was nursing our kids, just the glow about her face, right? Just the joy, the pure, yeah, <laughs> Mother's Day. And God has the audacity in this verse to say that all that love, all that emotion, all that joy is just a dim hint of my delight in you. And then there's this weird phrase. It's the last phrase that we read. It says, your walls are ever before me. What's God talking about? Well, he's talking about Jerusalem, city, that of course has walls. And you know what he's saying to you? God is telling you, your life is ever before me. Everything about your life is ever before me. I never forget you. Can a mother forget her child? A mother's fixed on her child. I'm even more fixed on you than a nursing mother on her child. And then, of course, his love is unconditional. Think about it. It's a horrible thing to say. It's an insult to all of us for God to say, I love you like a nursing mother loves her infant because that's God's way of saying, you know, you're the infant in this equation. You give me nothing. Nothing but take, take, take. You're completely selfish. You had no value to my life at all. And yet, I absolutely love you unconditionally forever and ever. So let me ask you a question. If you knew a love of that magnitude by a a person of this magnitude, and if you knew that was really, truly yours, If the reality of that kind of love was an abiding reality to your heart, like moment by moment, existentially, consciously, what kind of person would you be? You'd be far different than the person who's sitting here now. At the very least, I could tell you this. If you really believed how much God loves you, there would be a fountain of joy within your life that no circumstance and no tragedy could ever put a cork in. 
But guess what? God is not done because ultimately all this is still talk, right? So here's a painful question. Here's a good answer. I think a brilliant answer on God's behalf to this question. Yet it's still talk. So we have to get to verse 16 if we're going to talk about this last part, a cure for the pain. And in the end, what really convinces you that somebody loves you is not talk, but action, right? Come on, right? That's why the Bible says in 1 John, Beloved, let us not love in word only, but in deed and in truth. Isn't that right? I think the poet extreme said it best when he said, Saying I love you is not the words I want to hear from you. You guys remember that? (laughs) More than words is all you... Okay. That is the song of my wife's heart right there. (laughs) And when you're in a new relationship, you're like, hey, does somebody love me? Words matter a lot. You want to hear, oh, baby, I love you, right? You want to feel that. You want to hear it deep in your soul. Maybe not like that. That was kind of a little creepy. (laughs) Affection and words are important, though, right? But at the end of the day, what you really want to see is action. If you have all words and no action, at the end you don't believe he or she loves you, right? That's the problem here. That's the problem. Words, words, words. They say, but I don't feel loved. Why? They use this word forsaken. Because I feel forsaken. You're not doing anything for me. I want to see action. But that creates this problem. And let's stick with this metaphor the Bible is giving us here about a parent and child. And moms, you know this. Dads, most of you know this. One of the most frustrating things about being a parent is this, like the ongoing stages of growth with the kids because babies can take it out of you. You know, no sleep, constant attention, crying and fussing and diapers. You know, it's just a nightmare. But as absolutely draining as infants are, how you completely orient your whole life around an infant and you get nothing in return, it's not quite as frustrating as when your kids start talking. (laughs) By the time your kid's like five years old and you've already completely oriented your life around them, you've made sacrifices, you've changed everything for them, but all your sacrifices are completely invisible, right? Your kids have no clue what you've done, your sacrifices, any more than a fish could understand water, right? Because the fish has lived its life, whole life in water, so it just, it makes sense, and that's what parents are for, right? That's why God gives us Adults, God made adults so that they'd take care of all my needs and give me everything I want. (laughs) And then there's those moments where you have to go against your kids' wishes. Um, You don't give them anything they want. You say no to that toy at Target. You tell them, it's too late for ice cream tonight. When they do that, like, what do they they say? How many parents have heard this at some point? You don't love me. How do you feel when they say that? What do you want to tell them when they say you don't love me? Yeah, you little twerp. You have no idea the sacrifices I've made for you. You have no idea the things that I've done for you. I love you so much. You have no idea the countless ways I've reoriented my life around you and all the sacrifices and the acts of love. They're far greater than this G.I. Joe that you want right now. But it doesn't matter to them. 
In that moment, that's all they can think of. That's all they can see. And don't you see we do that to God? Don't you see we read the Bible, we see words, 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 so we say, hey, uh, why aren't you doing something for me right now? What have you done for me lately? You don't love me because you're not answering my prayers right now. If you really loved me, you would fill in the blank. And through this text, God is making us think. He's asking you, not just to feel, not just to act, but to think and process this metaphor. Pause, reflect, meditate, and take, take your time with it. It takes thinking, but if you do, it will change your life because God says to us, and he usually leaves the part about twerp out, but not always in scripture. He says, you haven't seen the magnitude of my sacrifice for you. The most crucial deed of love that really matters is not the one you're worried about right now. And what is it? Look at verse 16. What, what is it? In verse 16, the metaphor changes and he says, see, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. At first, this just looks like another nice metaphor about his devotion, but it's much, much more, and here's why. See, in ancient times, the name of a master might be tattooed on a servant, but never ever was the name of the servant tattooed on the master. Because that would mean the master was devoted to the servant. But what we have here, like when we read this, we might be like, isn't that beautiful? Oh, it's just another lovely metaphor of God's love. No, it's not. It's not a beautiful metaphor. It's a horrible metaphor. Know why? It doesn't say tattooed. Look, it says, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. And that word engraved only shows up one time in the Old Testament. It's a very specific Hebrew word that means engraved with a hammer and a chisel or a spike. Now suddenly that metaphor is horrific. It's grotesque. Why in the world would you conjure up the image of someone out of love letting people take a hammer and drive a spike into the palm of their hand? Isn't that horrible? Isn't that cringeworthy? crazy, right? No, it's not crazy. Centuries later, there was a guy named Thomas. And Thomas was like this guy here in verse 14. He's filled with doubts. He says, I can't be sure. All his friends are shouting, you should have joy. You should have hope, Thomas. He's risen. Thomas is filled with anxiety and doubts. And what happens? Jesus appears to him and he says, look at the palms of my hands. See my love for you? Look at what's on the palms of my hands. See, that's, that's our final point today. Because it's far more than words. It's far more than a nice sentiment. It's an act of love. It's not just talk, it's action. You know why it's our final thought today is, what if you say, oh, I can't believe God loves me because I look inside my life and I see all this awful stuff in me. I see all the things I've done. Do you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, oh, are you afraid that God's gonna forsake you? On the cross, I was forsaken. I cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I was forsaken. I got the forsakenness that you sense you deserve. So no matter what you do, God will never forsake you. He loves you as unconditionally as a mother loves her nursing infant. And you say, what about all these other things out here? The, the seeming unanswered prayers, the difficulties, the sorrows, the silence. What's Jesus say? 
says, don't you see I've done the thing you really need? If you see I've done that, will you please trust me with all these other things? I mean, that's what parents say to their five-year-olds, right? When you see everything else I've done, will you please trust me? You don't need that. You, you don't need that right now. You need this. Just go to your room for a little while. You'll figure it out. And that's the final point today. Do you know what? If right now your soul is restless, if right now your soul like Thomas is filled with doubt, if right now you feel forsaken and abandoned and forgotten, then you're like a restless infant who's whining and crying and overwhelmed with life. That is, until you get a hold of the milk. And guys, this is the milk. The gospel is the milk. This is the loving embrace your soul longs for. This is your choice now. Even if you sit here today and you're like, maybe some of you have had great parents. Maybe some of you, you sit here and you feel like your parents have forsaken you. Psalm 2710 says, though my mother, mother and father forsake me, the Lord will bear me up. You know, maybe your mom and dad did forget you. Whatever has happened to you, none of this has to darken your life. It's your choice now, today, right now, you can begin by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life through meditation, through contemplation on the word of God, taking it and working it into your heart, drilling it down toward your affection to be, to be melted, as Richard Lovelace said, by spiritual understandings of the gospel and a blazing joy about God's love for you. You have to live in holy consciousness of this. And if you don't, you're going to be stuck. You're going to be stuck taking your identity from what people say to you. You're going to be stuck being crushed anytime you're insulted. You'll toss and turn in your bed at night when you've been slighted. You'll, you'll be elated when things go right, and you'll be crushed when things go wrong, and you'll ride this roller coaster, and you'll look in the mirror one day, and you'll have gained a little weight, and your, your identity goes flying out the window because you're taking your identity from how you look and from what people say and from all these exterior, circumstantial, momentary things in life. But you can be free from all of that today. None of that has to darken your life because God is like a good mother. And you know how good our mothers are. They will move heaven and earth to get to us. They'll do anything so that you can flourish. Well, this great mother, if you will, can move heaven and earth, has moved heaven and earth, and you will flourish. So I pray that today as we start to wind up, I pray that you'll comfort yourself with these words, comfort your heart with these words, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for these passages in Isaiah, for an astonishing demonstration of your saving grace. Lord, we, we know we don't, we don't know the gospel. We, don't, we know the gospel well enough to know we don't know it. We don't understand it. Its power has not fully been released into our lives. But we see here today more ways for us to do that. In some ways, it has been released as we've sat here and sang your praises and, and been listening to your word. So we ask right now, Lord, that you just drive down deep into our hearts what you've said to us. That in Jesus Christ, you love us. You will never forget us. You will never forsake us because Jesus himself was forsaken. 
He took what we deserve on the cross and now we belong to you. Our lives are ever before you. We're engraved on the the palms of your hands. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to know and be shaped by that. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.